Workplace bullying is defined legally as repeated unreasonable behaviour that poses a risk to someone's health or safety. The general atmosphere of the place was just tread carefully when around her and tread carefully when communicating with her. That fear, that anxiety of slowly, slowly starts to permeate your whole life. It's horrible. It's not a way to live. So I started getting really bad anxiety rashes and hives all over my body. I'm not the type of person who succumbs to stress that way, so for me that was a really insane warning sign. You were scared to leave your desk. You didn't want to not be exactly where you were supposed to be in case somebody dropped something on you that you were supposed to have answered an hour ago. You were kept in a constant state of terror. You're listening to episode four of Off The Record. This is a podcast series by the journalist at LSJ that aims to shine light on dark issues in the legal profession. I'm your host, Kate Allman. This episode is proudly brought to you by our sponsor, Legal Home Loans. This month, I'm talking about bullying. Not bullying in schools or bullying among children, because that is where we most often hear the word discussed, but bullying in the legal profession, in law firms, courtrooms, government legal departments and legal teams within other businesses perpetrated by professional adults who know Australia's employment laws better than most and who are trained to uphold and protect justice and equality. (laughs) Bullying lawyers have managed to fly under the radar for some time, and while a light has recently been shone on sexual harassment in law, helped by campaigns like Me Too and Time's Up, bullying has remained in the dark. It doesn't have a hashtag and it isn't always easy to spot. But when I ask lawyers about whether they have been bullied at some point in their careers, the overwhelming response is yes. In May, the legal industry received a wake-up call in the form of some hard evidence to support this anecdotal evidence. The International Bar Association released the results of a global survey that involved 7,000 lawyers in 135 countries around the world. It asked those lawyers whether they had experienced bullying or sexual harassment, or both, in their workplaces in the past year. One in two female lawyers and one in three male lawyers reported experiencing bullying at work. That is an average across both genders of 38%. And if those numbers don't sound huge to you, let's compare it to the average across all industries in Australia. Safe Work Australia released a report in 2016 about a survey they conducted across all industries in the Australian adult workforce. And in that survey, 10% of respondents said they had been bullied at work in the past year. So based on those numbers, lawyers in Australia are almost four times worse than the Australian average. One lawyer who started her career in the Sydney office of an Australian big six firm put it to me like this. I can't really think of a time during my four years in a top-tier law firm where I or someone I knew was not being bullied. This particular lawyer, like most of the lawyers I've spoken to, didn't want to be identified in this story. I'll call her Jess for the purposes of this podcast. Jess describes the Sydney legal industry as like a small country town, and she tells me that no-one wants to be known as the whistleblower because, in her words... You'll never work as a lawyer again. 
I can tell you that Jess was a summer clerk and a graduate lawyer at a top-tier firm between 2008 and 2012. During those four years, she was overworked, micromanaged, yelled at, sworn at in front of colleagues and clients, admonished by group email chains, harassed, deliberately isolated from her peers, and even physically assaulted. (gasps) Jess was so worried about what the firm might do that she didn't want her voice to be used in this recording. And for that reason, we've got an actor to read out some of the more confronting examples of bullying that she told me about in our interview. The words are real, but the voice has been changed. And a warning, some of this material is distressing and may be triggering for some listeners. I remember once the partner I was working for had to go to New York for work. I guess he was used to having 25 people around him acting like trolley dollies, carrying his files and wheeling all the litigation folders across Martin Place and up to court. Another graduate and I had packed his carry-on suitcase with all the documents he needed and he forgot to take it. We had explained beforehand what was in the files and while they were important, and we left it waiting for him at the door of his office with the plane ticket sitting on top. Somehow, he took the ticket but left the suitcase behind. We ended up having to courier the suitcase to him overnight, and if you've ever couriered anything from Sydney to New York, you know it's expensive. When he came back to the Sydney office, my colleague and I tried to apologise about the situation. He picked up one of those big plastic lever arch files and threw it at me, yelling, get the fuck out. I put my hands up to stop the folder hitting my face and the plastic side of the file slashed my wrists and the side of my cheek. I still have a 30 centimetre scar across my wrists. Jess describes enduring a sort of hazing period at the firm, during which the young women were tested with sexual harassment, taunts and grim tasks. The male senior associates chose Jess for a discovery task that forced her to review extreme porn, including bestiality and worse, for three weeks straight. At another point during her time at the firm, Jess went to Human Resources to ask if they would move her off a sexual harassment case that her team was working on. She had been a victim of sexual assault when she was younger and she found the material quite traumatic. Here's what happened. I remember the day that I went to HR to ask about being moved off the case. It sticks in my mind because the head of HR had a big suicide prevention file on her desk with information on how to protect mental health among lawyers. I came to her to tell her that I wasn't coping and her solution was to move me away from my team and isolate me on an entirely different floor where I had to do discovery on my own. She may as well have said, ''Oh, sorry you were raped. We're just going to send you down to the loading dock to be alone.'' It was such an impressive juxtaposition. Kirsten Woolston, a senior associate at DBL Solicitors in Brisbane, was the only victim willing to share her name on record for this podcast. Woolston has practised law for 13 years in a wide range of legal workplaces from small boutiques to mid- and top-tier firms, in government and as in-house counsel. She experienced the more common bullying techniques of micromanagement, harassment, unrealistic deadlines and public humiliation, of course. But she also talks about managers who timed junior lawyers while they were in the toilet to ensure they took less than six minutes. She talks about partners using derogatory sexist terms and wolf whistling to beckon their colleagues to their offices. Some of the behaviour she describes encountering is so confronting that without knowing her name, 
you might assume we took artistic license and made it up. So here's our interview. Have a listen. One partner, the equity partner, he didn't believe in using my name. Uh, He would call me Cupcake, Buttercup, Princess, or you. Some, my office was furthest away from him, so he'd lean backwards out of his chair and just whistle as if I was a dog down the hallway. <laughs> if I didn't respond, uh, he'd actually come and find me and, I, and ask what my problem was and saying to a partner, I don't respond to a wolf whistle somehow at the age of 26 wasn't an option. I, I don't know why I responded uh, to that for for a couple of months before I did stand my ground. But he would also, um, he'd attack your work. It would be the simplest thing, a service letter, dear colleagues enclosed by way of service, you know, list of documents. You've written exactly what he'd say. And it could be anything if it was a bad day. That could be ripped up in front of you. It could have a red line through it. Or his favourite was just a big red question mark. And being a junior, you'd take it back in angst over this seven-word sentence, and you it would just be, you didn't know what to do with it, really. You'd try and get feedback or, or try to make him happy, and on a bad day, there was nothing you could, you could do. So in the top tier, I had a male partner and a female partner. The male partner would call the client and promise all sorts of things you know the client wants a unicorn in an hour and a half time sure no problem Kirsten can deliver that the fact that I there is no way on this earth anybody could deliver a unicorn within the next hour was besides the point and he also wouldn't tell me that he he'd made these promises or commitments or this is what we could achieve so when the next day would come and I'd missed this unilaterally decided deadline it reflected quite poorly on me and the partner seemed from my perspective, take delight in confirming in an email to the client that I was copied in on that I'd missed this deadline and and he would sort of swoop in and save the day. And you were always in this state of you didn't know what was around the corner. You didn't know what it was that you were supposed to be doing because it would change on you very rapidly. You had no control over it. No control over it. Called into his office and chastised. And that's all right if it's just you, but the two partners seemed to, they'd bring in somebody else to witness your embarrassment. Sometimes I was called in to witness somebody else being told off. And it didn't bring us together. It, it sort of alienated you from your colleagues because you were so mortified and embarrassed. At the same time, the female partner, she regularly uh, stayed back very, very late. And I because I was working under her, I was required to stay back until she left work. And she would, as I say, she'd often stay until midnight or one in the morning. So if I left before her, she'd email me through a list of tasks or requirements that needed to be on her desk at 7 a.m. So if you've left at 11.30, go home, have dinner, see your, your spouse, you back at work at seven, you know, 7.30 the yeah. next morning. You haven't touched an email and suddenly you think you're getting there at 7.15 and you're nice and early. And you're in trouble from something you didn't do at one in the morning and you just started your day off off badly. That particular female partner would time you. She'd time any of us. She used your jun- juniors or your secretary to time you if you were away from your desk. So if you were gone from your desk for more than 
six minutes, so a unit, they'd come and find you. And if you were in a bathroom, they'd actually knock on your door and say, partner wants you. And you had to then go and explain why why were you, uh, you know, in the bathroom. And the mortification from that was awful. So in the end, you just, you were terrified. You were scared to leave your desk and talk to a colleague. You were you didn't want to not be exactly where you were supposed to be in case somebody <laughs> dropped something on you that you were supposed to have answered an hour ago. You were kept in a constant state of terror. Yeah, and that's no way to live. How did it affect you physically? Obviously, these long hours and, and being at the desk and constant fear, it's no good for you. Uh, I was constantly at the doctor's. My mum reminded me over the weekend because I said, you know, I was doing this and she was saying, you used to shake. You had this fine tremble in your hands constantly. You look like you had Parkinson's. You were constantly shaky and trembly, pale, irritable, uptight, snappy. So I was, um, to my mind, putting on weight, even though I was barely eating anything. My hair was falling out. My skin was a mess. My hormones were a mess. I wasn't sleeping. I had tummy ache. I had the shakes. It was just as a walking disaster producing this top grade quality work on a string of terror it was never to be repeated <laughs> at the end there kirsten touches on how the bullying began to affect her mental and physical health it's an angle we need to pay attention to because we know lawyers are at a higher risk than most other professionals of suffering poor mental health and depression Could it be that bullying and toxic workplaces are contributing to the poor mental health epidemic in law? Here's what some other lawyers had to say. Look, it was was terrible. Um, And, you know, the conversation that we're having in the profession around mental health at the moment, I think, is quite focused on, you know, long hours and private firms. But bullying is a huge source of that as well. And... I found it very difficult to turn up to work. It started to also affect my personal life. Um, I found it difficult to focus. Just that, that fear, that anxiety of, you know, someone's going to behave in this way at any moment, you know. And then, you know, that starts as being something that you think about when you start your day. Then it becomes something you think about maybe, you know, when you're on your way to work, then it, you know, becomes something you think about the Sunday night before the week starts and it just slowly, slowly starts to permeate your whole life and it's, it's horrible. It's, it's no way to live. <laughs> Within the first month, I just knew there was something off about the environment that I was working in. There was a lot of revolving door stuff. People were coming, people were going, and I just couldn't understand why this was happening. And then I started speaking to people and everybody just kept reassuring me, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? The specific partner who was supposed to be my supervising partner was the one who was the bully. She was the one who kind of put me on the back foot when I started. The general atmosphere of the place was just tread carefully when around her and tread carefully when communicating with her. So I started getting really bad anxiety rashes and hives all over my body. I'm not the type of person who succumbs to stress that way. So for me, that was a really insane warning sign. 
um, it started on my hands and on the back of my neck, and then I would go home of an evening and it would just have spread all the way down to my torso, to my thighs, and um, I decided to go to a doctor to see if it was some type of bacterial thing that I'd picked up or some type of virus, and they basically found nothing and said, you definitely need to de-stress because we think this is a manifestation of your stress. Just generally my self-worth had just crumbled. I didn't have faith that even sending an email, I would read it like 10 times before clicking send. That's the level of anxiety that I was driven to. If you were being made to feel like you're not good enough and you're being made to feel like this isn't for you, it's, it's not worth it. You are good enough and you shouldn't have to have one person making your life miserable just because you think there's no other option out there. And there are good places out there. You just need to be able to believe in yourself and look for it. She really, really did a number on me. And I honestly question whether or not the legal industry was for me because of her. In researching bullying and the prevalence of bullying in workplaces for this story, one name kept coming up as an expert in the field. Peter Fleming is a professor from the University of Technology, Sydney, who teaches in the Management Discipline Group and has published nine books as well as more than 30 journal articles on management and corporate personalities. One of Peter's central theories is that bullying is on the rise in modern workplaces. In fact, the Productivity Commission has estimated it costs the Australian economy between $6 and $36 billion a year. But it is allowed to go unsanctioned in many places. Peter writes about how, for a long time, we thought bullying only happened in traditionally male-dominated or blokey industries like construction and in the military. We didn't think of it as a white-collar issue, so we didn't expect to find it in places like law. But recent research, like the International Bar Survey and Report, have found that bullies do not discriminate and they can be found in every industry. I asked Peter why. Why is bullying becoming more common across all the professions and why would this increase potentially hit lawyers hardest? And you say bullying is on the rise in recent years. Why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. Um, well, first of all, from a methodological point of view, it's only being measured now. So, right. of course, it could have been way, way more prevalent 30 years ago, but it wasn't being measured as it is being measured now. But all indicators seem to suggest that it is increasing um, and that more and more you're more and more likely to experience it in, the, in a workplace setting. And there's a number of drivers, you know, researchers are really kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And they've come up with, uh, and like anything, it's complex, you know, there's n there's a number of drivers or causes. And one of them is um, in stressful workplaces um, where there's pressure, you know, you can imagine a sales environment, uh, certainly the legal environment where there's a lot of pressure mm. and a lot of stress involved, um, and a very instrumental, um, object objective um, orientated culture you're going to have a lot more strident behaviour um, and sometimes some quite egotistical behaviour being uh, prominent um, as opposed to introverted, civilised behaviour. Mm. So that's one driver. Um, hierarchies are important here as well. Author authoritarian um, organisations in which authority is, um, is paramount right. are more likely to have uh, bullies... Um, roaming the hallways, unfortunately. So if you think of a law firm, which traditionally has a pyramid structure with, yeah. you know, the authority, a few partners at the top, a lot more workers at the bottom, uh, that 
is an environment that is ripe for bullying, is it? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And, you know, also there are some occupations, and I'm, I'm guessing that the law, prof- law profession um, might be one of them, you know, it's, it's deemed to be part of the culture. Yeah. That you haven't really paid, yeah, you haven't paid your dues if you haven't been bossed around in an aggressive way by your superior. Yeah, it's sort of a hazing sort of ritual, <laughs> isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. No, so that institutional condoning of bullying behaviour can play a role too. Right. So there are lots of industries, I guess, where bullying could maybe be expected to be common historically. Uh, I'm thinking of like construction sites, Mm -hmm. um, especially with women entering construction sites now. And we know there's been bullying in the health industry among doctors and young doctors particularly. Um, But the International Bar Association has found that as many as one in two female lawyers and one in three male lawyers around the world has been bullied at work. Are you surprised to hear those numbers? Not really, not really. Um, I know a little bit about the profession and it is a pretty um, uh, high-pressured environment, uh, very hierarchical, um, quite masculine uh, oftentimes, um, and you have to put up with uh, you have to put up with it as a culture in which it's condoned. Um, and also, I think it's important to keep in mind that prestigious occupations have, for many years, considered to be above this. As you say, it's the building mm. site that you look at um, rather than um, upper tier white collar work. And so they've kind of got away with it for a long time because no one thought that this is where, that such aggression and incivility would be would be part of exactly, the institutional fabric. Exactly, in a white collar industry. Exactly, exactly. Um, but that's really kind of allowed it to go unchecked for quite some time. Yeah. And you know, organisations are now trying to deal with the repercussions of that. Mm, and what are some of those repercussions, both for individual victims and for the organisation? Well, for the individual. It kind of can, your occupation can kind of become something that is, you know, just incites dread um, in you before you have to go into into work and you avoid the office if you can. Uh, Productivity and morale goes down, obviously. Mm. And um, it becomes a living hell. You know, the thing about bullying is that it can get under under your skin. Definitely. And if it's a good bully, they know how to work you psychologically as much as um, through fear and, and, and coercion. And that stuff you take home with you and you start to kind of find ways to escape it and it can become quite ugly, Uh, especially if you're in an organisation that makes it difficult to talk about. Mm. Um, So there's that impact um, on the individual, but organisationally, you know, know, it's it's not rocket science to see that this would have a hit on the productivity levels. Um, If morale and um, a positive culture have a positive impact on on performance and productivity, then this is obviously going to really take a hit if you've got um, bullying as a as a part of your culture. Is there any research on what can lead to better organisational cultures and prevent bullying? Well, yes, there is some research um, on this, and I think you've got to or you've got to read this research uh, with the point in mind that. You know, it looks good on paper, but actually implementing this stuff is quite it's difficult. Hard, yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if, if it's been, if a culture of bullying has been instit- institutionalised over many years, mm. changing that can be really, really tough. Um, but the research tends to tends to point to, um, you know, leadership structures in which, um, in which it is stated very clearly that bullying is not part of this organisation and communicated very clearly. 
with um, with avenues for um, what we what we call in the literature targets those who get targeted um, who are bullied avenues for their to for them to voice voice their um, experiences without fear of being fired or treated in a negative way, which mm. unfortunately happens a lot. That's why people keep quiet about it and that's why it persists. Peter says that bullying is allowed to persist when people keep quiet about it, when they're too scared to speak up and report the behaviour. And this is extremely common in law. The stakes are high and people face losing prestigious and high-earning jobs or reputation over a bullying complaint. The IBA survey found as many as 57% of respondents who had been bullied did not report it. And the reasons they gave were for 60% of those victims due to the profile or status of the perpetrator. For 58% of victims, they said they feared repercussions. Among those respondents who did report the behaviour, a huge 76% said that the response by the firm was insufficient or negligible. And that's despite the fact that most, if not all, medium and large firms have anti-bullying policies enshrined in their corporate values and written into employee contracts. Josh Bornstein is the managing partner and the national head of employment law at Morris Blackburn. He thinks bullying could be the new frontier of workplace rights in the post-Me Too era. Josh has worked as an employment lawyer for more than 30 years, and during that time he's heard countless stories from lawyers in all types of workplaces who have been damaged by bullying. Josh has spent his career fighting bullying in the workplace, and he's seen it all, from managers yelling and screaming at their underlings to what he calls more Machiavellian cases. He's seen the best person to be asking what constitutes workplace bullying and what can we do about it. I just reached a point where I was sick of having people in a puddle in my office who, you know, had fallen apart. In a puddle as um, in of their own tears? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, I, and I cracked it and I cracked it and then I started um, writing and campaigning about it. I started off as a union lawyer yeah. in 19... I don't want to tell you. <laughs> early, early 90s. What I worked out is bullying is part of human nature. It's, yeah. to be found, it's to be found in all industries. It's to be found in government. It's to be found in not-for-profits. It's to be found in religious organisations. It's rife in politics. It's rife in the media. Mm. It's rife in sport. Um, and it's rife in the law. And what kind of behaviour do you see in these bullying situations? Okay, so the issue about what constitutes workplace bullying um, is the subject of much misinformation and misunderstanding. Right. Um, workplace bullying is defined legally as repeated unreasonable behaviour that poses a risk to someone's health or safety. Yeah. So if I, go into, if I go into your office and yell at you once... That's not going to be enough for a, uh, to satisfy the legal definition. Right. But, but the, the expression is deliberately general because workplace bullying can encompass any sort of behaviour that's unreasonable and repeated. So you get screaming, yelling, very overt workplace bullying, and then you get extremely Machiavellian workplace bullying. Like one of the ones is just cancelling meetings. That's a very common Yeah, right. Where your person wants to meet with you, and you agree to meet with them, and eight times you cancel it. How annoying. 
So someone might say, oh, that's just bad luck. But actually, if it keeps on going and going and going, clearly a lot of the time is not just bad luck. And no, it's a very common, common way one person can say, I'm very powerful. Yes. And I'm going to treat you contemptuously. Yes. I've spoken to lawyers who have talked about uh, partners throwing files at them. One woman said that she had a 30-centimetre scar from being th literally had the book thrown at her. Yep. I've heard of phones being smashed, books being thrown, desks being turned upside down. That's, a, that's very obvious and, you know, overt aggression. I probably don't see so many of those cases these days. I see more Machiavellian cases. Yeah, right. More subtle cases. I asked Josh why bullying could be so rampant in the legal profession. I mean, most law firms and businesses today have anti-bullying policies, and lawyers should perhaps be the best in this field with our knowledge of the justice system and employment law. By all rights, we should have the lowest rates of bullying across all industries and professions. So why, why are 38% of lawyers being bullied? And how are those bullies still able to get away with it? Oh, look, I think it's, it's what, you, what you identify is that there is strong power imbalances. Um, mm. So it's deeply hierarchical and where you have those hierarchies, often with people who've, who've been bullied themselves who get to the top, yes. um, they can replicate that behaviour to those underneath them. Yes. The, the data still shows that bullying is quite underreported. And I know the IBA has just done a survey um, that says, you know, bullying in law firms is unreported in 57% of cases. Why yeah. are people reluctant to report it? Because of it's really the same situation that uh, sex, sexual harassment victims find themselves in, which is... Uh, a whistleblower situation, you don't want to expose yourself to the adverse consequences that a whistleblower often uh, confronts. And, what, and are, so, what are some of those consequences for lawyers? Oh, well, losing your job, being victimised yeah. and being driven out of the organisation. And then obviously uh, getting a job in the future. I mean, the legal profession is a small world. Yep. Do, the, do those sorts of reputations follow people around? Um, yes, they can. As a whistleblower? They can, oh, absolutely. Yeah. If it becomes public, yes. Yeah. So the talented rainmaker in the law firm often leaves a path of destruction behind them. Yes. Um, we see this in politics. And why doesn't people, anyone do anything about it? It's a bit like the kid with all the Tonka toys in the playground kicking sand in everybody else's face, right? Sometimes it's fear. The other thing is sometimes the people who are very good at this are very talented and valuable. So and they're the rainmakers. The rainmakers, the, rain the, the geniuses, the surgeons who are perfectionists who will never muck up an operation. Mm. Uh, they may be completely brutal people to deal with, but they are valued. You see this going on, people are in a moral bind, have this ambivalence about whether to address address the problem or just mop up after it and manage it. In your experience, are HR departments um, helpful or useful in sorting these issues out? HR departments are not 
a separate part of the organisation. They are part of the politics within the organisation. Right. If politics of the organisation give the HR department confidence that it can address workplace bullying and weed it out, um, reduce it, minimise it, then HR departments will help. If the message to HR departments is different to that, we've got to protect our leaders, our rainmakers, and uh, mop up after them, then they'll manage out the people who complain about workplace bullying. Yeah, definitely. So they can be part of the Machiavellian mix. They can often extend a sympathetic hand to someone who's complaining about bullying and then turn around and engineer their departure. The Productivity Commission in 2010 gave a very wide range estimate of the economic cost of, I think, between 4 and $14 billion per annum. Wow. Um, wow. But, the, but the truth is no one knows the full cost because not... As you, as you say, there's a lot of under-reporting mm. um, and so the data is, is impossible to capture. Mm. Um, it certainly um, is extremely damaging to health. Someone um, suffers workplace bullying over an extended period of time, that can be quite catastrophic. That concludes episode four of Off The Record, a podcast series to shine light on dark issues in the legal profession. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for upcoming episodes which will investigate other taboo topics in law. If you like the series or if you have ideas for other topics we should cover, you can reach me, Kate Allman, on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Or tune in to the Law Society of New South Wales social media accounts. You can also email us at offtherecord at lawsociety.com.au. You've been listening to Off The Record. I think even just having this conversation is tough because yeah. it brings back a lot of the, the physical symptoms. I can still feel that right now talking to you. I know. And, you've been very um, brave. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it's all right. Sorry, it's just... Have a drink of water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's so hard. When I published that piece in the ABC, I just got so many emails. Because so many people have been <laughs> Yeah. How's your new firm? I can't begin to express how happy I am to walk into work and a willingness to stay back. It's so much better. Oh, <laughs> so, so much better.